Whether it's running, hiking, biking, golfing, or even working, Curex insoles can help your patients live healthy and active lifestyles. Using the latest medical and biomechanics research, Curex insoles are engineered for unequaled comfort, performance, and injury prevention. With its patented dynamic arch technology that enables the ideal ratio of flexibility and rigidity, Curex insoles properly support the foot and its natural movement for ideal knee and hip alignment. And because no two patients are alike, Curex offers a full line of highly customised insoles available in high, medium and low arch profiles. Learn more about the science behind Curex and sign up for a free sample at medical.curex.us. That's medical.currex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today marks 100 episodes of JOSPT Insights. A big thank you to all our guests who have generously shared their tips, tricks and knowledge across the breadth of musculoskeletal rehabilitation research and practice. But most of all, thanks to you for listening and for all the wonderful feedback we're consistently receiving and those lovely reviews. If you're loving the JOSPT Insights content, please do let us know. You can connect with us on our social media accounts. We're at JOSPT on Twitter and at JOSPT Official on Facebook and Instagram. Or feel free to write us a review like Piano PT, who writes that JOSPT Insights is, quote, exactly what I've been looking for. Thanks. For our 100th episode, we have an extra special guest joining us to talk leadership, inclusion, and the future for musculoskeletal rehabilitation. Dr. Emma Stokes is president of World Physiotherapy, formerly the WCPT, and a tireless and fierce ambassador for the physiotherapy, physical therapy profession. In today's episode, we'll draw on Emma's leadership roles in academia and world physiotherapy, plus all her experience leading, building teams, educating clinicians and treating patients for a chat that I hope you'll find both inspiring and motivating. Dr. Emma Stokes, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you join me on the podcast today, Emma. And usually on JOSPT Insights, our guests are tackling a clinical problem in musculoskeletal rehab or they're sharing insights about a particular issue in sport. But today we are unashamedly zooming out and talking about the bigger picture in our profession of physio, of physical therapy. And I absolutely can't think of a better person who's more qualified to talk about leadership and inclusion in health, in rehabilitation, in physiotherapy, physical therapy, than you, Emma. Wow, listen, I'm delighted to be here and thank you for the invitation. It's always a great pleasure to talk with you and I'm really excited about this podcast and reaching out into the JOSPT community. I think we should start by getting a sense of what does a day in the life of Emma Stokes, a typical day in the life of Emma Stokes, World Physiotherapy President, look like? Well, busy, I suspect, is probably the best way to describe it. And, you know, it it has varied. My world physiotherapy role is a volunteer role. I have a full-time day job, and that full-time day job has changed over the course of my seven years as the president of world physiotherapy. 
but has always been situated within academia or within universities. So it's a long time since I've treated patients. And then last year, in November, I returned back to a new role here as the Vice President for Global Engagement in Trinity College. So World Physiotherapy has been inside those day jobs. And a typical day, there probably isn't a typical day. But let's think about what I do typically uh, in my role as the President of World Physiotherapy. And again, that would have been quite different before COVID. And then we had the pandemic and that changed everything. As the President of a global organisation, you have two main roles. Your, your, your main role, I suppose, is a governance aspect, which is looking into the organization and ensuring that it's, it's well set up and from a governance and management perspective. That means working with the board. And World Physiotherapy is a very diverse board, a diverse board in terms of their, their physiotherapy backgrounds, but also their, their experience of boards and their cultural background. And then working with a great team in the organization. The other aspect of it, the piece that people are very familiar with, I think, is when you go out into the world and you talk about world physiotherapy or so you give some talks at a conference or you're representing world physiotherapy on another stage with another set of uh, stakeholders such as WHO. For the first four years as as the president of world physiotherapy, we're very focused on re-energizing the organization and building on what had gone before to bring the organization into a very contemporary space. We also have a series of projects that we work on. So again, looking for funding to to fund other aspects of our work. And then COVID happened. And we're really only emerging from a global pandemic. So a lot of those big, big decisions that a board has to make, huge connection that we made in those first four years, really building on the years that have gone before, but leveraging social media in a very different way, allowed us to do some incredibly exciting things during COVID, things that I feel brought the world together. We're not afraid to be thought leaders now. So if we see something as a signal, we often pick it up and we run with it. And long COVID and our work in that space has been a very clear example of that. Let me pick up on some of that, Emma, because I think World Physiotherapy has done some really important leadership work that grew within that early pandemic phase around long COVID, as you mentioned, but also around telehealth and about delivering rehabilitation in different communities within that very unusual context of a pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about that work and how it how it emerged? The ability to be able to respond in that really agile way came as a consequence of the of the work that we had done in advance of that. So we were well structured, we were well resourced and we were confident of what we were doing. We knew that there was a real need for bringing information together in a way that produced supportive documentation. What we did was we set about doing some briefing papers. And the the idea behind the briefing papers was not that we didn't want to go for peer review, but they may change. This is our position now. But as a consequence of some very serendipitous networking, Nikki Clark Baker contacted me. She said, we know as a consequence of the evidence arising out of SARS, MERS and Ebola, that 10% of people after those viruses developed post-viral fatigue syndrome. And that has very significant consequences. So when you look back to our first briefing paper in May 2020, we signaled that. So we picked up that signal in a lot of the sort of, a lot was going on around the acute care of people with COVID. We were very much trying to think about the role of physio. So we were thinking very much around rehab for people who had periods of time in ICU. And we didn't know much about COVID at that stage. But what we did know, we put into a briefing paper. 
We then moved into briefing papers on education, regulation, particularly with the focus on what changes had happened from a regulatory perspective. And we did a survey of, of educators. We did a survey of, of member organizations and individuals looking at digital practice. And 70% of organizations or individuals prior to COVID, 70% of organizations that replied said no digital practice wasn't permitted or supported in their jurisdiction. That flipped entirely to 70% being enabled. That was you know, a classic example of how for a decade we've been talking about this. We had the white paper ready and then we were able to bring people along that journey and then really track it. So I think there was a confidence. There was a sense of we need to do something and we're not going to be afraid of If we get it wrong, we're not going to be afraid to acknowledge that we've got it wrong. Now, as it happens, I don't think we did, but we gave ourselves permission to be out there in front of things, recognizing that we were doing it in the service of our member organizations and the wider global physiotherapy community and acknowledging that we may or may not have got it right or wrong, but that it was the best we could do at that time. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the community really valued having something at that time because, as you say, no one had seen this kind of illness before. Everybody was sort of struggling to, you know, take care of kids who were home from school, worrying about getting ill, trying to figure out whatever they were doing when they were redeployed into a different clinical role, a different teaching role. There was just everybody was, you know, the whole world was in chaos. We all know that. We all lived through it. So I think there was real value and that that signals to me the value of an organisation like World Physiotherapy. And the other thing is that those briefing papers can change. So there's no, there's no reason for them to be a static document. And they're all open and, and free for folks to access from the World Physiotherapy website, which is critical. Yes. And that's where we decided we would develop the COVID hub. So one of the things that we're thinking about moving into this space of being a knowledge hub, and again, this idea of open access to knowledge, you know, sort of, you know, the open science agenda of bringing it into the professional organization space and really creating open access as much as possible and, and, and drawing on our community to develop the, the content as well. So one of our more, one of our papers, our sort of later papers was developed by about 50 physiotherapists, people living with long COVID. And that was a really collaborative endeavor that we supported. We didn't write it, but we supported people writing it. That's where I think you start to see the value of the global community. Yeah, and I think it also illustrates the breadth of opportunities in the physiotherapy profession, because I think we all sort of immediately go to the clinical role, which is, you know, makes sense. That's why we get into physiotherapy or physical therapy degrees in the first place. And then here we're talking about people who are doing work in a lot of different fields from policy to delivering clinical care, to education, to setting up programs, and then to your leadership role. So there is such a diverse range of options for people who have this original clinical training. Absolutely. Like I would always self-identify as a physiotherapist. You know, anywhere I go, even as the vice president for global engagement, I say, oh, you know, I'm a physiotherapist. And, and yet at the same time, I don't let that limit me. I, I don't ever let it go because I don't want to let it go, but I would never let it limit me. But I think the skills that we have as physiotherapists, the things that we are able to do, the empathy that we, we can bring to things, the organization that we can bring to things. And, you know, you can bring all of those skills to other roles and not leave physiotherapy behind. Emma, let's talk about leadership. And I'm not only talking about leadership in, I think, the traditional sense that we think of leaders is as leaders of major organizations, leaders of countries, leaders of professions. but 
I think you and I both share the view that leadership happens at any level. So can you share a bit of your philosophy on leadership and and share some thoughts with our listeners today on how folks can lead at any level where they are within their organisation? When I started to learn about leadership, it was when I was doing a, a graduate business degree and I suddenly discovered you could learn about leadership. And so that's the first thing. People aren't born leaders. I mean, some of them are, don't get me wrong, but most, most, most people aren't. Most people, it's a, it's a hard slog and it's an intentional learning journey. And I think what's brilliant now is that leadership and leadership development has been embraced in a great way in our, in our, in our profession, I think in our undergraduate pre-registration programs, whether they're undergraduate or masters or DPT level, are embracing the fact that we need to learn about leadership. And the idea of leadership as a mindset rather than as a position, I think is really important. So this idea that actually, you know, you can lead from wherever you are. And that's the contemporary expression of leadership. Leadership is about bringing people on a journey. The idea of having a leadership mindset, which says that you lead from wherever you are, is that you see something that needs to be done differently or you see something that needs to change, then why are you waiting for someone else to do it? Who do you need to go and have the conversations with? How can you get involved in ways that allow you to lead, perhaps that may not be immediately available in your day job? And that's where you start to, to learn, to learn leadership and enact leadership. When we think about that, then we have to think about the idea that leadership requires taking a little bit of a risk sometimes. And so doing a risk safely is a great way of doing it. So getting involved in something at work that really you enjoy. So if it's a project that involves some sort of change or something that in your brings joy to your heart, maybe from a clinical perspective, or for a lot of people, I often say, you know, the things that bring joy to your heart might be that you love working in, in people, with people with Parkinson's and therefore getting involved in an association of people with Parkinson's. If you love working in sport, but you still have to do the day job and the day job doesn't involve a lot of sport, how can you find that place where you can find joy in your heart with what you do, but often it's those opportunities that allow you a little more autonomy, maybe, or a little more opportunity to do something with another group of people that might bring change to something is a way into leadership. But it's never about the position. You can lead right from the beginning. And sometimes you might be asked to do something and you're thinking, oh, why are they asking me? You know, they're asking you possibly because A, they see something in you that means you can do it. Or B, there isn't anyone else and they think, well, we can trust this person. So never be afraid to say yes to something like that, particularly if it's a stretch. Um, Because all you need to do is say, yes, I'm happy to do it, but I will need some help. Now, I love that you bring up that idea, Emma. And I think imposter syndrome for many of us is not far away. And that sort of idea of taking a risk, a calculated risk or, or pushing yourself, but having some kind of safety net in place is, I think, important for helping us deal with this imposter syndrome. What would you suggest to folks listening to us today who are thinking, yes, but I'm not old enough, or, you know, I don't have the right skills, or I'm a woman, or I'm from a diverse population, and and I've never seen someone who looks like me in that role. How can we overcome that kind of sense of, I don't belong here? You know, I have enormous privilege I have always lived in a community where I am part of the majority. And I have come from a very resourced life. And I don't mean that financially, but I mean that from the point of view of the resources that I have within my family and my my network and my supporters. So I want to speak to that experience, I suppose. First of all, if you're really passionate about something, passion and enthusiasm can get you a long way. 
And people will help you if you're passionate and enthusiastic. In my experience, people are helpful. And people are always looking for people to get involved with things. So if you are asked to do something or you see that no one else is putting up your hand and you think, I could give this a reasonable stab, then say yes. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, the worst thing that can happen is you have to go and ask for help. And nobody minds that. And secondly, yes, you might be a bit stressed, but growth comes from that stretch, that bit of extra effort that you have to give, or that moment where you think, I don't know what we're going to do, but listen, we'll all do it together. And that's for getting a group of people with you. So I started off volunteering in the Irish Society of Chartered Physiotherapists. And I think volunteering in a community, a professional community, means there are people there to catch you. So there's a safety net of other volunteers or people who are a few years ahead of you in, in that community, whether that's the MSK community or if that's, you know, your professional organization or it's in the JOSPT community. You know, if somebody volunteers to do something for you, you're not going to let them, you know, you're not going to drop them in without help. You're going to provide them with the supports they need. So that's the first thing. And then every now and then you just have to take a chance. And so I give the example of the Global Rehabilitation Alliance, which we, which was founded in 2018, but which in 2017, I remember sitting in the executive board room in, in, in WHO, and we had been through the, the launch of Rehab 2030. And I remember saying out loud, because it had become apparent that we needed this type of alliance. I, I remember clearly saying, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what success is going to look like. I don't know how we're going to do it. But World Physiotherapy will help do this. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what we're going to do. I have absolutely no idea. But I knew that there were good people who were going to do it with me. And so in the end, we launched the Global Rehabilitation Alliance in 2018. And you will now see that um, it's the World Rehabilitation Alliance. It will be a WHO alliance. And it will be, there'll be a soft launch in September 2022. And the formal launch will be in early 2023. Now, that has been an amazing journey. Every step along the way, I would say that I have been stretched. But also, I realize that people never mind people not knowing where to go next because there's always somebody who has a few suggestions. It's never as big a risk as you think it is, especially if you're not doing it on your own. So, Emma, then what do you see as the most important characteristics of good leadership? I think you have to commit to self reflection. I think. Leadership, for me, certainly has been a constant learning journey. I've worked with a coach since 2014. You know, I've spent a lot of time reading, sense checking, getting feedback. That doesn't mean I get it right. I mean, most of the time I think I probably get it wrong. But it's, it's that sense that this is an intentional learning journey. And for me, that's one of the key aspects of leadership. It's that idea of, you know, the technical skills you pick up. The emotional intelligence aspect of it is a thing that you really have to learn yourself. And I know this is often referred to as soft skills, and that is the greatest. I mean, that is just the greatest misnomer because those are hard bits. The technical stuff is easy. You know, the technical application is the doable bit. The conversation, that coaching conversation with somebody, that bringing somebody on a journey, that not solving the problems for somebody, but enabling them to find the solutions themselves. The cultural aspect of things the way in which tone, body language, those are the skills that make all the difference. And they are the tough ones. 
And they are transferable. Like they are the ones you can do those in as a teacher. You can do those as a researcher. You can do those as a writer. You can do those as a clinician. They go across everything. Those are the really important skills as a leader. Absolutely. Now, I cannot finish a podcast with you, Emma, without talking about some of the challenges that are on the horizon for for healthcare broadly, but let's talk specifically about musculoskeletal care because that's where the JOSPT community is primarily based. As you and I record this podcast, there's lots of stuff going on in the world. What do you see as the role of physiotherapy, physical therapy in helping the world to navigate some of these major challenges? So I, I think we have, you know, we have we have significant responsibilities and they require us to move well beyond our local application or enactment of our profession. So, and I, you know, I often, so if you, if you look at the research that has come out of some of the, some of the Canadian research and some of the research that's been done by um, one of my former PhD students, Imre McGowan, uh, you know, absolutely stellar researcher, we can see from that research. Now, remember, that is culturally bound in that we're talking about Canada and Ireland, okay? But, but nevertheless, if we look at physiotherapists from, from their skill set uh, and the things that probably bring us into the profession and then keep us in the profession, there's a focus around sort of the structural aspect of leadership and perhaps the human resource, the, the relationship aspect. If we're going to tackle the big challenges, if we're going to tackle uh, ensuring that we have adequate funding for healthcare, if we're going to tackle the inequities that exist in health services, the fragility of health services, we only have to look at war in Ukraine and what that has done in terms of the numbers of displaced persons. You know, we're looking at inflation. We're looking at we're looking at still parts of the world that you know are still very much affected by COVID. So if we want to change something in healthcare or we want to advocate for our patients, we need to move outside of our small space. We need to start getting an awful lot more comfortable, I would have thought, with the skills around advocacy. We need to learn and understand how that's done. And we need to understand political leadership and be comfortable with it. And we're not. And the evidence would suggest that, you know, it's not something that we do. And then we look at, you know, our colleagues in other health professions and we say, oh, look at them. They're great at it. And, you know, they weren't born great at it. They got great at it because they chose to learn how to do it or because they see other people doing it. And so I think areas that we need to get a lot more comfortable in if we're going to respond to these big societal challenges are around how do we advocate? How do we lobby? How do we make sure that those responsibilities, we take those responsibilities and we decide that they are not someone else's responsibility. They are our responsibility or they are collectively something that we want to advocate for. So learning about lobbying, learning about advocacy, being far more comfortable with power and politics and influence and learning those, those skills and those, those um, the, you know, the technical aspects of that. It's not someone else's responsibility and waiting for someone else to do it is part of the problem. Chip Heath has a great book, Upstream, and it talks about this idea that Problems aren't dealt with upstream because people don't necessarily think that they own the problem. Uh, and they're looking around saying, oh, this is a bit of a problem. I wonder who, well, if there's no one else taking it, let's take it. So if somebody needs to be advocating for different sustainable practices in your clinic and you're not seeing them being done, don't wait for someone else to do it. Get out there and start doing it. And I think the world physiotherapy mantra of stronger together, better together 
are really important phrases for us because it's so true. We are stronger and better together. And and that's where organizations like World Physiotherapy can help us harness that benefit of the group. Absolutely. And I think the other thing to remember as well, and it's one of these things that this idea that we shouldn't feel like there's an awful lot of people out there that need support for rehabilitation. There's an awful lot of people out there who would benefit from physiotherapy. There's an awful lot of people out there that would benefit from being more active. We shouldn't be fighting about who owns the space. We should be saying that there's actually enough space for everyone. And particularly in the MSK space as well, we shouldn't be closing in on ourselves. I think the more we open up to the possibilities and the more we define our best practice and stop fighting with one another about who's doing what and starting to think about the fact that working with people living with musculoskeletal problems is is going to be really important because if we don't take the big picture on this one and we're going to lose it and somebody else is going to take the big picture. And that's where I think being clever and innovative and collaborative with the person at the center of everything that we do is really important. Dr. Emma Stokes, thanks for helping us create that space for our profession and this global, wonderful global community. And thanks for joining me today on JOSPT Insights. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. So before you skip to the next episode in your podcast lineup, in honor of our 100th episode, you get to hear from all three of the hosts from JOSPT Insights. First of all, what a great freaking way to celebrate triple digits. I'm feeling very empowered to be a leader, not just for me or my organization, but for PT. Thank you to Emma for that. We really just want to give a gigantic thank you to all who listen. We're just two nerds who love that we get to help spread knowledge to the rehab world. The goal of every episode we record is for a clinician to take at least one thing away that they could apply in the clinic that same day. Well, a lot has changed with the podcast from episode one to 100. That goal has always stayed the same. Again, just two nerds starstruck over rehab world celebs that we are interviewing, barely even knowing how to set up our microphones when we first started. Interviews lasted approximately 36 hours and... And Dan edited them for another 36 hours. I don't think we can ever thank Alison Grimaldi enough for how much time she spent with us in our first episode. It was definitely not the most efficient process when we got started, but there have been a lot of improvements along the way. And you know what? Back then, Chelsea was even speaking slow enough to understand her at one point. Okay, that is rude, but also very true. Thanks for sticking us with us as we figured out who we were as hosts and who we are as a podcast. Um, It's the most amazing thing when people reach out and say that they're learning and applying things that they hear on the podcast. I mean, because we do. We do, too. Um, Sometimes we ask questions on behalf of the general sports or ortho population, but sometimes we're learning right along with you. Um, I needed a refresher on myelopathy just last week. Thanks to Dr. McInnes, she provided that. Dr. Stu Warden gave me tons more confidence in treating bone stress injuries. The same goes for Heiderscheidt and his hammy lessons. I think that Eric, I think about Eric Mara whenever I say the word strength, when I should be saying force. Uh, The list, I mean, seriously, goes on and on. I will never forget when Eric said he sees post-operative ACL patients sometimes once a week or less to start. And you just said that's bonkers. I stand by that. (laughs) (laughs) There have been some great learning moments uh, going back to chronic pain with Merv Travers, helping us break down anti-fragility and treating patients with chronic pain. Dan Lorenz's episodes on middle stage ACL rehab. And beyond all these amazing episodes and people that we've learned from, we're now starting to get into case reports, learning from in-clinic examples 
with actual patients from JOSBT cases episodes, as well as breaking into sports-specific rehab considerations in our Sports Corner series. It's been a wild 100 episodes. I've learned a phenomenal amount from the opportunity to speak with such smart, engaging experts, and I'm really looking forward to what we're going to learn in all the episodes to come. So we'll keep coming up with clinically relevant content for you and uh, you know, stick around for the ride. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm